Let me start by just reading the passage that we're going to talk about today. It's going to be on the screen. We're in John 1, uh, verses 14 through 18 is what we're going to cover today. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hey, will you pray with me? God, we just, uh, we're super thankful for today. And we're thankful that we got to get up and we got to get here. And uh, we're thankful for our community, for the church, for what you've given us. And God, for your scripture, as it speaks to us, God, I pray that you would do a work in our lives, that your spirit would be active and present in this place, in the lives of each and every person. God, as we, as we discover what it means, um, what John wrote about Jesus, and that he was so excited in the bold claims that he made about your son, God, I pray that, that that would just resonate in our lives, that our excitement would flow from that. Bless Jackson and his choir, God. Just, just take them and, and explode their popularity, explode their presence as they bless people with their worship and with their music. God, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, who, who is aware of, if, if you have watched any kind of movie or read a book, or seen a play, or even written some kind of paper, or speech, or anything like that, who's aware of how, how important the opening is? Like, say, the opening scene of a movie, right? Uh, that is critically important. Um, if you have any experience with all those things, you know that what it does is it grips you. Uh, in 1993, my life, and many of your lives, changed with the arrival of one of my all-time favorite opening scenes. Steven Spielberg and Michael Crichton paired up to give us the wonderful Jurassic Park. Yeah, right? And if you are familiar with the movie, you can probably remember the opening scene. But just in case, let me refresh your memory. Uh, they are located on a fictitious island, they being the people in this scene, called Isla Nubar. It's not even real, so don't worry about it, right? Yeah, I can pronounce it however I want, and you can argue with me, but uh, it's not real, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's a dark night, and what they're doing is, is they're actually taking a velociraptor, and they're moving it from a portable cage into its permanent holding cell. And of course, their plan gets flipped upside down, the velociraptor rattles the cage, gets some space, and grabs the gatekeeper, starts, you know, doing what velociraptors do if humans were there, right? And, uh, and, it, and it, it basically, you know, it, it, it amounts to the guy uh, in the, the main character in the scene yelling, shoot her, referring to the velociraptor, shoot her. And you kind of are left with that haunting image. And that haunting sound as you go into the rest of the movie, and it captures you. Like, it gives you like goosebumps. I remember, I, I, I want to say I was like 11 years old the first time I saw it. And I just remember like, oh my goodness, this is, I can't believe this is happening right now. Uh, th this is amazing. I'm, uh, it was PG-13, so I was never supposed to watch it, but I did anyway, because so, I was 11. <clears throat> 
Anyway, that's the extent of my rule breaking, okay? You can be confident in that. But that's what, that's what, that's what an opening scene does, right? It, it captures you. It, it grips your attention. And today what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up the opening scene of John's gospel. Uh, in some translations, it's called the prologue. In other ones, it's called um, the word. And there's just different ways of calling it different things. But essentially what it is is it's his opening proclamation about who Jesus is. Now, uh, as we come to a close of this opening scene, I want to just, just point out two things that will help you with what we've been through. And I will say this. If you have missed the last couple uh, weeks, one or both of them, the opening uh, two messages from the series, I encourage you to get the podcast because in totality, these three messages will break down kind of what we've been talking about with those three. So make sure you catch up on those. Uh, and the reason is because one, it's, it's foundational. It really is foundational. John is laying a foundation for what he's about to proclaim for the rest of his gospel. And, uh, and, and I'll say that because, you know, you have these things that are so, um, so big picture at the beginning of his gospel is different than the other gospels in that sense. They're so big picture that you really need it in order to kind of follow what he's going to say or at least to have the foundation that uh, he's laying at the beginning of this book. And then the second thing is, is it, does, uh, it does feel sort of academic, right? Um, it, it, it has these high thought kind of ethereal ideas about who Jesus is, but remember they're foundational. So rather than say like John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is pretty clear, is it not? But then you open up John, it says, in the beginning was the word. And if you have no idea what he's referring to, that being Jesus, you're like, in the beginning was the word? What does that mean, right? And the word was God, and the word was with God. And you're like, if you don't kind of understand what's happening there, then, then sort of what John's going to lay out, definitely what John's going to lay out over the rest of this chapter and then going on could be a little confusing or, or at least hold a little less weight. And so I'll say this about this specific passage. Is it life or death to understand the original language and the nuance and some of the stuff we've been covering? No. It's not going to affect your salvation if you don't understand the, the nuance of, say, like the word or the flesh or dwelt. Like we're going to talk about some of that stuff. Is it life or death? No. But it is important to understand as you shape your understanding of Jesus and who God says he is and who John says he is through the inspiration of God. So, you know, going to the idea of sort of academia, right? It can get a little nerdy, and if you're like me, you're like, yes, I love word studies, right? But not everybody understands that. Not everybody is excited about that. Not everybody gets on that same level. So let me just say this. Um, if you're a little bit discouraged because you're like, I just am not, I don't know what he means fully. If you're, if you're at all just thinking to yourself, like, it's hard for me to get on, get on board and get excited about that, that, that's okay. That's okay because I would encourage you to open up your heart to what God is doing in your life. Maybe he's shaping you in a new way. Maybe he's pushing back on some things that you understand through what he's saying in John's gospel. And let me tell you this. God wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know his character and what he has said about you. And the primary way that he does that is through his scripture. And so diving into this is one of the most important 
things you can do. So don't be discouraged by it. Jump in, take some notes, ask some questions. We would love that. Uh, Pastor Kelly and I are both available to answer those questions uh, throughout the week. Shoot us an email, text, whatever. Um, but, don't, but don't walk away from this without really thinking critically about what John's saying in his foundational statements. So let's dive in. If you, like I said, if you missed the previous weeks, I encourage you to catch up. But just in case you weren't here or you're not planning on catching up on the podcast, I'm going to give you sort of the eight proclamations in verses 1 through 13 that he's given that will lay the foundation for verses 14 through 18. So let's just go through those really quickly. Uh, the first one is this. In the beginning was the Word, meaning that before the start of time, the Word, being Jesus, was already there. The implications are he's creator, not created. That's important. Number two, the word was with God, implying that Jesus was in a relationship with God before the beginning of time. Not necessarily the true father-son relationship that we see in our culture, um, but but just implying that there is indeed a a relationship happening there from the beginning of time. Uh, We we haven't spent a lot of time going through Trinitarian theology. Uh, Again, not a life or death thing, but something that's important to us. Um, If you want more on that, great. We're not going to spend a ton ton of time on it today. But I will say this. God has been in relationship since the beginning. And therefore, because he's wired us for relationship, we should really take heed of that. Okay? Number three, the word was God. Um, Basically just saying that Jesus is indeed God. Uh, which is there's pushback in different faiths on that. Number four, all things were made through him. So all things were made through him at the outset of original design. The design at origination was perfect and without flaw. In him is life, and life is a light to all. In Jesus is where we find life, and therefore without Jesus we have the opposite of life, which is death. Death, right. In Jesus' life, outside of Jesus, is death. Number six, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is good news, right? Even the songs that they were singing were talking about the light that Jesus is, how he's shining himself into a dark place where death exists, and death does not have power over him. It does not have power over him. Therefore, when you are in Jesus, it does not have power over you either. Number seven, he came into the world, but the world did not receive him. That's pretty clear what that means. And number eight, those who did receive him became children of God. And that's where we leave off and pick up what we're going to read today, the scripture that I read to you at the beginning. So what I want to do is I want to, in the last few minutes that we have together, I want to walk us through the scripture and then talk about a few implications of what John is saying. So we'll walk through the scripture, kind of explain what's happening, and then we'll talk about a few of the implications of what that means for um, both the people at the time and for us. And so if we pick up verse 14, if you have it on you, um, great, but if not, you can just listen because we're going to just talk briefly about the first few words here. The word became flesh. Now, up until this point, everything has been sort of deep, rich, and thick in, in this passage, and it it's going to continue, right? Like, there's some depth to what he's saying here, and so I kind of want to just break it down. Uh, Jesus, the word, is no longer just God in heaven. So all of this is, that's been said up until this point is referring to God as the deity, not necessarily requiring him to be here. But at verse 14, it transitions to what John knows to be true, that Jesus came down from heaven and became flesh. 
Now, he, he, he actually didn't just put on human flesh, but he also put on human nature. The original word is sarks, um, which it, it means that uh, it wasn't just in physical form, but he put on the human nature as it was originally designed. Now, important to just consider as you're considering this is that the original design of humanity was without sin. And so he did take on fully human nature, but he was not a sinner. God, Jesus was the God man, man and God at the same time, but he was still without sin. So while he was still fully human in body, mind, soul, and spirit, he was without sin. That's important for later. Continuing on, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only did he take on humanity, but he lowered himself into our world to dwell among us. The, the, the language, the translation there is that he literally was to pitch a tent or a tabernacle. So before Jesus, the presence of God would travel with the Israelites in the tabernacle, and then eventually they had the temple. But essentially what it was, it was this physical place where they would set up and God would be in that place and people had to go to the tabernacle to interact with God and then they would leave and God's presence would dwell there. So if Jesus uh, become, comes to earth to dwell among us and becomes the new tabernacle, that changes everything. It changes everything. He becomes the physical tangible, relational, human representation of God. He relates to you. He feels your pain. He feels your sorrow. He feels your joy. He feels your happiness. God, Jesus, came and is God represented through human form, and he understands us. That's incredible. That's incredible. But it doesn't stop there. He becomes the new tabernacle. He becomes the new place at which God and his people now meet. They're now reconciled through Jesus, not through a physical place, but through a person who came to die on a cross for us. So he's not just in a physical place, but he's a person, he's the God-man, and he's now the meeting place. So just in those like 10 words, um, John is like flipping the script on all that people know, right? He's flipping the script. He's like, this is so different than what you've been taught before. Hear this, hear this. See, religion would teach that people have to go and ascend by their good deeds and their actions up to God. But Jesus actually does the opposite. Jesus teaches that uh, he comes to descend, descend, to come down to us because we can't ascend to God because of who we are as humans. And he creates a new, better, deeper form of communion. He reconciles humanity back to God in a way that only Jesus could do. Continuing on in verse 14, I know we're zipping through this, guys. I'm sorry, but um, just hold on. We'll get to the end, and we'll have kind of tie it together. Um, it says, and we have seen his glory. So the, the, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we witness Jesus' glory as the one and only son. That was and still is a bold claim. Rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and John was willing to make it. We'll talk about this in just a second as well. But it's not just 
that, that Jesus was God and man. It's that the glory that he had was given to him from the Father. So this wasn't like a, a, he was going around making big deal about himself. It was actually the opposite. Many times in, in Scripture, Jesus refers to himself as, I can do anything without the help of my Father. Again, implying the relationship, the necessity of the relationship. And it's evident in the way that he lives in the state of grace and truth. And I want to talk about that in a few minutes. I think that's where the capstone for me is going to lie today, is we're going to talk about what it means to live in grace and truth. But let's continue on just through the rest of the scripture here. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now that's a confusing sentence, but basically what he's saying is, not, not the author, John, not John the Beloved, but John the Baptist was making these proclamations early, saying, listen, even though he's younger than me, he is God, he is before me. Because a lot of people were listening to what John the Baptizer had to say. They were trusting what he had to say. And so when John proclaims this, it turns their attention from him to Jesus. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's beautiful. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, the first five books are the books of the law, and they contain 613 laws that God's people were called to follow in order that they would live a right life. Now, this wasn't just the right life in the sense that, that God was like trying to get them to submit. It was literally him leading to the best life possible. That's what the laws were intended to do. So I think if we actually appreciate it in that sense, um, we can actually agree probably, at least I can as a linear thinker, that God gave structured, rigid laws to help people get to the best life possible. He's saying, listen, if you want to be perfect, here's the 613 ways to go and do it. The problem is, the one thing, the big thing is, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't possibly live up to the perfect standard. In fact, only one person ever has, and that was Jesus. So the most beautiful act of love ever was God, in exchange for his perfect son, giving up that son at a chance for a relationship with you and I. A chance. Not the guarantee, at a chance that he would have a relationship with you and I. Through death on the cross, God and his son Jesus gave up the, the, the perfect nature. They gave up everything in order to have a chance at a relationship with you and I. That's incredible. So now, instead of grace through the law, which is kind of a funny way to think about it, right? But if really, like if the law was, there's 613 things that you have to do each and every day, and then you can have the greatest life possible... Instead of that type of grace, that's what John's saying, grace upon grace, we now have the new grace in Jesus. So we exchange the 613 laws every day of your life, all of the time, for simply following and believing in Jesus. Believe and live. We exchange those laws for, the six, or for believing and following Jesus. That is grace upon grace. And then verse 18, the final verse says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now that's, again, some confusing 
language, but I think it's summed up in this way, and then we'll get to the implications of grace and truth. Um, there's two things that I just want to point out about John that will help you understand why this is such a critical understanding or a critical passage that John is writing, right? So he's making these bold, I mean, really bold proclamations. I mean, it, I mean, really bold proclamations, especially for um, a religious person, because John understood the weight of what he was saying both for himself and for the people around him. These are the types of proclamations, the types of claims that get you killed, and the people around you get killed for it as well. So you have that, and then you have the fact that he was also Jesus' best friend, John the Beloved. Now, I'll just point this out, right? If you have a best friend, then you know that they likely know you better than anybody else on earth, right? For me, it's my wife, Thea. She knows me more than anybody else on earth. She's my best friend. Now, here's the thing. If I walk around making bold, outrageous claims that I'm God, who do you think is going to be the first person to call me on it? <laughs> my best friend, my wife. Yeah, she's like... She's back there right now, like, I would, I would totally call you on it, right? Now, okay, so let's just say somehow, uh, worst case scenario, I have convinced her to just keep her mouth quiet and just say, you know what, okay, don't believe, that's fine, but just don't say anything to anybody else, right? Well, John actually wrote this gospel 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's just say... 60 years goes, I pass away, 60 years goes by, and Thea is not only still believing what I said, but she writes a book about it to tell everyone else what I said about my awesomeness. It only says one of two things. Either she's crazy, which we know she's not, we know John's not crazy, or it's true. It's true. So the implications of what John's writing in this opening scene are huge because they're both bold and true. There's no denying it, therefore setting the stage for what the rest of, he's, the rest of what he's going to pen, what he's going to author, is, is hinging on the fact that we understand that Jesus is both man and God. So let's just spend the last couple minutes here just talking about the implications of grace and truth. Um, I have two, so if you want to write these down, I, I would... I would recommend just, just writing these down as points of thought. The first implication is this, that Jesus coming full of grace and truth is for your benefit. Jesus coming full of grace and truth is for your benefit. I'm reading a book by a, a former president of Whitworth, Bill Robinson, and he's talking about this very thing, and he says, um, truth without grace cannibalizes people. Grace without truth enables people. So you can see that one or the other in and of themselves might be a good thing, but without the other, they actually disable themselves. In fact, grace without truth or truth without grace, however you want to say it, actually eliminates all possibility of truth telling because either someone doesn't want to hear it or it's not true. But if you have the tandem, if you have the two, which is why it's so great that Jesus brought it, it's so important. So from the beginning of time, this is, this is where it comes to your benefit. This is why it's a benefit for you, and then we'll talk about why it's a benefit for others. From the beginning of time, the overarching theme of all creation is for God to be glorified. 
He created us for the sole purpose of being glorified. He wants our affections turned towards him. He wants to be glorified. He's God, right? It's actually not like we, we talk like God's primary thing is to have a relationship. The relationship piece is important, but his primary thing as God, he didn't need us to have a relationship. He wants to be glorified, okay? So just, just hold that in your mind. So he created us for his glory. Now, think about this. Is there anything less attractive than two people living in begrudging submission to one another? Right? So if I, if I have someone, so if someone asks your spouse, let's just do it this way. If someone asks your spouse what it's like to be married, okay? And their response is, I'm going to be honest, it's miserable and I hate it. Right? And then they ask, okay, well, why are you married then? Well, I made a vow before others, before God, and I just don't want to, I'll suffer through it so I don't have to break my promise and deal with all of these people asking me questions, right? Can you imagine the person's response when they're like, what's it like to be married? And you give them that response and they're like, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Like even when I was a little kid, I wrote in my journal, I can't wait for, look right there, to be miserable and long for an early death. That's not attractive. Right? It's just not attractive. There's no glory in that. But when someone comes to me and asks me and says, hey, uh, what's it like to be married to Thea? And I can't stop gushing over how amazing she is and how I find her more beautiful than she was the day I married her and how her, her, her intelligence challenges me like nobody else and how I, wait to, I can't wait to get home to talk to her. That's attractive. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, the humanity in our life, like it exists. Like sometimes I can't wait to get home to talk to her because I want to tell her how wrong she is and how right I am. <laughs> but I still can't wait to get home, right, to talk to her. Like, that's far more attractive. So if God is about being glorified, then what better way for others to see his glory than to see our joy found in him? He's not after your begrudging submission. He's after your willingness to participate in a relationship. So when Jesus comes full of grace and truth, he's going to tell you the truth, but he's going to do it in grace. I love that we get to, we get to see Jesus' interactions because, because of the implications of him being God and man, we know directly through his example how God would respond to situations. So you want to know how God's responding to you? He, you read the Gospels. You see Jesus' interactions with people and then his ultimate sacrifice for you and I. That is grace and truth. It had to be paid for, and he did it anyway. So his truth is our benefit. His grace is our benefit. His truth is about helping us get to the right, to get us to the right place so we can live the best life possible, and his grace opens the door to the best life possible even when we can't get his truth. He tells us the truth, and he gives us grace when we can't match it. That's for our benefit. Then the second is this, the second implication. You can write this down as well, and here's where we're going to end. Jesus, coming full of grace and truth, is for the benefit of those around us. So it's for your benefit, and it's for the benefit, and my benefit, and the benefit of those around us. Jesus is crazy about you. He's crazy about you. And guess what? He's crazy about the person that drives you crazy. 
He is. He's crazy about the person that drives you crazy. That person that cut you off in traffic this week or the person who made your coffee wrong even though you gave them clear, explicit instructions on how you wanted so much foam and that it must be 157.3 degrees or you just can't stand the taste. If you just amend that in your head, I have advice for you. Make your own coffee and yell at yourself when you get it wrong. The world will be a better place for it. It really will. But Jesus is crazy about your family. He's crazy about your friends. He's crazy about your coworkers. And if they don't know it, then you have the privilege of painting that picture on the canvas of your relationship. With your family, you get to paint the picture that Jesus is crazy about them. With your friends, He's given you a canvas to paint the picture of how crazy he is about them. With your coworkers, with the people who drive you crazy, Jesus' truth and grace is on display in our lives. And every day is a chance to tell that story to those around us. Through how we live in relationships to one another and how we treat one another. So here, here it is. His arrival means that there is no longer pressure to live the perfect life. Instead, the goal is to chase after him. The goal is to believe him and live for him. And if your life feels heavy because you're trying to get it perfect, I have one question. Why are you doing that to yourself? The weight of life and trying to be perfect is crushing you. Why are you doing that to yourself? Because Jesus isn't. God's not doing that to you. You're doing that to you. John knew the weight of what Jesus did for humanity. So much so that even 60 years after it happened, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he just couldn't stop being excited about it in a sense that he had to write a book about it. I just, I don't even want to do anything at night, let alone try to write a book, right? Can you imagine? And he's like, it doesn't matter. I'm so excited about it. I got to tell people. I want people to know what it's like to live a life full of grace and truth, one covered by his Savior, my Savior, your Savior. So as we close this opening scene and we see what it is doing and setting the table, it, it, it literally is setting the table for the feast that is about to happen. The whole, the whole book is just going to be a feast of understanding who Jesus was and what he did and who he is and what God says about us through the parables and through eventually his death and resurrection. That's why John wrote it. It says at the very end of the book, he, he says, if we tried to write everything Jesus did for everybody, there would be no amount of books to hold that information. So here's what I can give you. Take it for what it's worth. And we're going to take it for what it's worth as a church. We're going to internalize it. We're going to understand that, that Jesus came on our behalf, full of grace and truth for our benefit and for the benefit of those around us. Let's pray. Yeah, thanks for today. And um, man, what a privilege it is has been to just be blessed by, again, by Jackson and, and the choir, God. Just bless them so much. Bless their souls. Bless their hearts, their minds, their bodies. God, give them influence. 
Let their excitement, their passion, their, their praise, their heart for you, let it be infectious. And God, for this church, I pray that we would take what you're doing in our lives um, through all of these experiences and we would run with it, God. That we would just run with it. That the excitement that John displayed as he writes these bold, incredibly amazing claims, as he writes those, God, just help us to have just a, just a, a fraction of that excitement and that fervor for Jesus in our lives. Bless this church, bless this city, bless our community. Help us to be a blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen.